0: Uh, this morning, what I want to do to begin is to, if you, if you bring a Bible, you can open it to Hebrews chapter 2. If not, you can follow along on screen. <clears throat> we're going to read chapter 2 together, and then we're going to ask God to uh, enable us to understand it and to apply it. This is Hebrews chapter 2. We believe that this is uh, the inspired word of God. The writer says, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. So that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. This is the Word of God. Uh, Last week, we began this study in the book of Hebrews, and uh, we noted a couple things last week. The first was something unusual about this book, and that is that we don't know who wrote it. Lots of speculation throughout the centuries about who might have written this book, but the bottom line is we don't know who wrote it. Uh, what we do know, uh, we know a few things about the people to whom it was written. For example, we know that they were suffering hardship. Why? Well, just because they were followers of Jesus. Uh, we know that they were fearful about their future, about things that were happening to them and what, uh, about what might happen in the future. We know that they were asking questions. It seems like this, Jesus, if you are the Messiah and you love us so much and you have brought your kingdom, then why is our life... So hard just because we are following you. And I said last week that, the, that this book gives uh, the same answer over and over and over to that question. And the answer isn't, you know, here's exactly why you're suffering or here's exactly what God is up to in the midst of your trials and difficulties. The answer of the book of Hebrews is that no matter what you're going through, no matter what you face, fix your eyes. On Jesus Christ, the author and the perfecter of your faith. That's the answer that the writer of Hebrews gives over and over and over. He also assures them that that Jesus is with them and will walk with them through any and every difficulty that they have. The writer of Hebrews is a master at setting Jesus before us in a variety of different ways so that we get to see him kind of from different angles like you would look at a a jewel a diamond and see many different beautiful things from different angles that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing for us in this book. Last week, we looked at chapter one and there the writer presented Jesus as the one who is better or um, probably uh, more translations use the word superior. Jesus is superior. He's superior to the angels. He's superior to the prophets. He's superior to any other religious leader of any kind. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says he is the maker of heaven and earth. That's who Jesus is. He holds the universe together with, uh, he says, just the power of his word. That's who Jesus is. And he does all of this, of course, because, in fact, he is God. That's the argument that the writer of Hebrews is making. He is the exact representation of God's being, says the writer. And since he is God, uh, you can't just kind of take a little piece of him and implant him in your life as just a, a small component piece of your life. No, the writer of Hebrews presents Jesus to us in the extreme. He's always pointing out that Jesus is extremely humble. Jesus is extremely loving, extremely caring, extremely forgiving, extremely holy, extremely just, extremely righteous. And so consequently, the writer of Hebrews says, therefore we must follow him in the extreme. Hebrews chapter two, verse one, we just read it says, we need to pay more careful attention to the gospel, to who Jesus is, to the story around his life, his death, his resurrection, so that we do not drift away. That was the problem then. And quite frankly, that's still the problem today. That we can become ambivalent that we can become laxadaisical when it comes to fixing our eyes on Jesus and remembering exactly who he is and what he's done. You see, in Jesus, we discover not a heavenly buddy, not not a life coach who can give us some good advice, not a really powerful spiritual being like an angel. In Jesus, who we meet is God himself. That's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to remember. And Jesus will not share his glory with anyone or anything else. And that we discovered last week has some implications to it. This week, again, we're going to, so to speak, fix our eyes on Jesus. And we're going to look at chapter 2. Interestingly, in this chapter, Jesus' identity is developed in a somewhat different manner. And this is actually quite deliberate, what happens here. The writer wants to encourage his readers who, who remember, are, are battling difficulty, discouragement. They're, they're battling persecution. Their life is in a very difficult place. And their future looks pretty frightening, to be honest, all just because they follow Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews, instead of focusing just on Jesus' superiority, he sort of swings in the opposite direction. He does talk about Jesus' superiority, but he also talks about Jesus' inferiority. Uh, He presents Jesus to us as a king, a a superior king. In verse 3, he says, but we do see Jesus who was made lower. There's the inferiority, lower than the angels for a little while. Now, however, crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So, you know, Jesus is the king, but he's not a typical king. He's a king who who becomes like his people. He's a king who suffers for and with his people. He's a king who gets involved with us in our stuff, in our messes, in our struggles, uh, in our sins, in our fears. And this king uses all of that stuff and even makes it purposeful. Uh, he uses all of that stuff to move toward a conclusion someday in history when his kingdom comes in all its fullness. And he's actually at work in us through all of that stuff, the ups and downs, the difficulties, in this case, persecution. He's actually using those things, and we'll look at that more in a moment. He's t- we see, too, in this text that the king is, in fact, also our champion. He goes to battle for us. He takes on our enemy, the devil, and the fear of death. And then lastly, we're going to see that this king is remarkably also our brother. Verse 11 says, both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, that's us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, we're told. And so again, this king is superior to every other king, but he is also different. He's very different than every other king. And this is supposed to encourage us to stay faithful, to not drift away when it comes to following him. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. Does that sound good? Sound like a plan? Anybody awake? Okay, let's pray. Father, would you speak to us this morning? Uh, We understand, God, that when we come and we read your word, it's capable, we are capable of reading it and kind of ignoring it or reading it and not understanding it. But the real key ingredient here, Father, is you, uh, you, Holy Spirit, who will speak to us, give us understanding, and help to apply these things in our lives. Would you do that in us and for us this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, Jesus is king. You know, when the writer talks about Jesus as king, understand, again, he's not a normal king. Uh, he's a king who, in verse 5, it says, God has subjected the world to come. That's the future. God has subjected the future to Jesus. This king rules the future. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but most kings, most politicians, have great difficulty just ruling the present. Have you noticed that? Not this king. This king is moving everything purposefully toward a grand and glorious conclusion when his kingdom comes in all its fullness you know his kingdom has come it's here now it's in you if you follow Jesus but it's not here in all its fullness Uh, Jesus kingdom is a conquering kingdom more and more people are believing in Jesus Uh, men women children and so uh, but because Jesus kingdom is advancing too we need to understand there's a great deal of opposition to this kingdom Jesus kingdom And what that means is for kingdom citizens, for people in this kingdom, for people who follow Jesus, well, guess what? Expect conflict, expect difficulty. Jesus told his followers one time, he said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And the readers of this letter, the, the ones to whom the writer of Hebrews is, you know, sending this letter, they're experiencing exactly that persecution. As I said, some of them have experienced financial loss. Some of them are losing their businesses. Some have lost homes. Some actually lost even their lives. And so as they look to the future, they're wondering, how is all this going to turn out? Where is this going to lead if we continue to follow Jesus? And so the writer of this book is telling them, look, if you continue to fix your eyes on Jesus, if you continue to follow Jesus, it is going to work out fine because he is going to bring it all someday to a very meaningful, appropriate and God glorifying conclusion. You see, our king is king, but he's not a normal king. He's a king that does hold the future. You can be sure of that. And he is moving all things purposefully forward in our trials and in our suffering and our, in our difficulties. And one day, all of these things, it will be evident, glorify God and honor God. But you, but you, you need to hold on to that truth even as you pass through trials, difficulties, challenges, etc. And you need to know that this king is with you in the midst of those trials. More of that in a moment. Something else that's kind of uh, just unusual about this king, you know, normal kings in that day, and we could also say in our day, uh, whether it's Roman emperors, right, or provincial governors, or whether it's uh, kings of little city states or mayors of cities or, or governors of states or presidents or what have you, all of these kinds of magistrates and rulers with very few exceptions were there to be served, not serve. They wanted to be served, and they cared very little for the difficulties of their subjects. That's not really their problem. In fact, their subjects are really their resources. More often than not, that's how they looked at their subjects. They were there to do whatever the king needed or wanted them to do, even die for the king if needed. But the description we have of Jesus here, I I hope you saw it, it's strikingly different than that. Because here is a king who, in verse 9, we're told, was made a little lower than the angels. In other words, he came from heaven to earth, and in so doing, he was humiliated. He was, uh, he was humbling himself. Uh, so he was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So you, you do see, I hope, this is a major, major role reversal. Instead of the subjects dying in service to the king, here the king dies in service to his subjects. Here the king descends before he ascends. This is a king who sees the plight of his subjects and actually does something about it, even though it costs him very, very greatly. And I need to say just a word about this. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 2 through 8, we read these verses just a moment ago. Um, I I hope you followed the argument that was there. The thinking is pretty interesting. In Hebrews 2, chapter 6, it says, there is a place where someone has testified. And that place happens to be Psalm 8, in fact. In Psalm 8, uh, it's talking about human beings. It's talking about you and me. It's talking about all of mankind, all of humankind. And this is what it says. It says, what is mankind that you, God, are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and yet crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. The psalmist is just, you know, (laughs) caught up in the fact that, wow, God, you have honored human beings by how you've made them, by responsibilities that you've given them, by the fact that you put all of creation under their feet. And uh, all of this, of course, is referring to what is what we encounter in Genesis chapter one, uh, the creation of man, where we read these words that God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature. So here's God he creates this glorious glorious world. I mean it's it would have been something to see and then in effect he he gave it to us to care for it, to cultivate it, to nurture it, and that meant that it was our responsibility to build a world where truth and beauty are seen everywhere. Build a world where justice and peace always prevail. Build a world where prosperity and health are universal, love and charity. It's just everywhere, bleeding out of everything. These things were our responsibility. That's what Adam and Eve and their posterity were supposed to do. But the writer of Hebrews says in verse 8, in putting everything under him, that's Adam, Adam and his posterity, that's you and me. God left nothing that is not subject to him, yet at present we do not see everything subject to him. That's just another way of saying we don't see everything working the way it's supposed to work. We don't see this beautiful, truth-filled, God-glorifying, people-flourishing world. We do not see everything subject to him. That's a massive, massive understatement, is it not? I mean, wow. Because the truth is, ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God, even since, ever since sin entered them and entered the world, no one, no one has been able to build a kingdom or a society that makes the world look like what God means the world to be. I mean, think about it. Ever since sin entered the world, while we do get some things right, thank God, we get most things, I'm thinking, wrong. Uh, think about it. We've tried and tried and tried, but never even come close, to eliminate something as simple as poverty. In spite of many, many heroic efforts, sadly, poverty still exists in abundance, and not just here, in every nation, in every time and in every place. Uh, we've never solved problems like education. That is just providing good education to everyone everywhere so that they can flourish, so they can put that education into practice and into use. We've never eliminated things like mental illness or even addictions like alcohol or drugs or a long list of things. We've never eliminated racism. We've never eliminated terrorism. We've never eliminated religious wars or divorce or sexual abuse or physical abuse or murder or murder of the unborn or wars of aggression or, or, or. We haven't been able to eliminate these things anywhere. Not in their entirety. Not ever. Not even from among God's own people. Not from the interior of our own hearts, let alone in society at large. So, what do we say to the fact that, quote, at present we do not see everything subject to us? You see, we were made to fill the earth. We were made to subdue it and rule over it. We were made to have the world at our feet. We were made to construct societies that would reflect the truth of God and give him great glory. But it hasn't worked out that way, has it? Truth is, much of the time, it feels like we're we're just being crushed, crushed under a weight of sin in the world and in us. And so we've got a big problem, a really, really big problem. Who is going to deliver us from this problem? A Republican politician? A Democrat politician? Friends, I don't think so. The writer of Hebrews says quite clearly and emphatically, uh, in verse 9, he says, but we do see Jesus. That's the counterpoint here. But we do see Jesus. Friends, the point is that Jesus is the answer to this dilemma. God's only answer, in fact. But we do see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. In other words, made just the same way we are made. It's like the writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, wait a minute. Psalm 8 is supposed to be about us, right? But we've really made a mess of this world. So guess what? Psalm 8 is actually also about Jesus because Jesus came from up there down here. Jesus, while being God, also became a man. And so, you know, he is now crowned a king with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You see, it's Jesus. The writer of Hebrews wants us to see that the one and only solution to this problem of getting the world where it's supposed to go and being what it's supposed to be, the only one that can fulfill what is talked about in Psalm 8 is Jesus. Jesus is a king. But he's the king who made himself human, who enters our world and will even one day rule this world perfectly. Yeah, amen. We don't do that in the Presbyterian church, by the way. No, thank you. Uh, So... You know, a king who doesn't just, you know, shout down commands from heaven. No, he comes down from heaven himself. He doesn't just say, do this, do that. No, he actually comes from up there, down here. And when he gets here, he willingly lays down his life to rescue us. He tastes death, it says, for everyone. You see, our king came and paid a great price And he came to redeem and to restore and to remake what's been broken and lost and destroyed. Our king is not like other kings. Our king cares about, even loves his subjects. That's you and me. That's the bride. That's the church. He cares even to the point of death. Now, this death thing is kind of interesting. In verses 14 and 15, the writer tells us that our biggest problem is actually the fear of death. That's our biggest problem. He says, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Somehow Jesus too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now, if you are, I don't know, 55 or younger, you're thinking, what? what's the big deal about death? I don't live in fear of death. And of course you don't. You live in denial of death. <laughs> because you see friends and family and loved ones, your, your, even your personal health, they've all been kind of on a trajectory where death seems distant, right? And this is true uh, for many of us, especially when we're, we're younger. And because this is true, we are able to live in denial of the problem of death, which is a really big problem that no one has come even close to solving. There's a psychologist, you you know about him, a psychiatrist, his name is Sigmund Freud. He made a lot of observations. Some were probably good, insightful observations, some not so. But uh, one of the things he observed in patients. And, you know, he would write down these observations, wrote books about them. And so one of the things he observed in his patients was that they were all, he said, deeply disturbed about death when you got right down to it. He says, because our lives are filled with disappointment and guilt and shame that we didn't do something we should have done or we did something we shouldn't have. Or because our lives are filled with unfulfilled expectations or unachieved goals, he said, we don't want to die. We fear death because of all the questions that we have about, you know, is there something after death? Is there judgment? Is there accountability? What comes next? You know, I haven't done that great in this life. What's going to follow is sort of the, the angst, the, the fear he said that he saw when he would meet with patients. And he said, so because of these fears, we just repress the whole conflict and tension surrounding it. And that's what he noticed. Everybody's repressing. Uh, nobody wants to really talk about or reflect on this thing that's coming for all of us, this thing called death. Now, when for some reason... You know, a human being is forced to deal with death. I mean, maybe your health goes south, you know, you get really sick, or somebody you love a great deal uh, passes away. Well, then kind of death is brought right up, you know, in front of you. Freud said then, well, that, that's when things get very traumatic, and we get very uncomfortable. And different ones manage those kinds of thoughts in different ways, some healthy, some not. There's a guy named Leo Tolstoy, you've heard of him, a great Russian writer, wrote the uh, War and Peace, and uh, you've all read that. And, but he also wrote a small book called A Confession. When he turned 50, something happened to him. The idea of having to deal with death became uh, very, very real and almost paralyzing to him. He writes these words, he says, something strange began to happen to me at age 50. I had a wife who loved me and whom I loved. I loved. I had a large estate, which without much effort on my part, increased. My name was respected. I enjoyed physical strength, and yet I could not live because of death. The question which brought me to the verge of suicide sought an answer without which one cannot live. Here's this question. Is there any meaning in life that my inevitable death does not destroy? Today or tomorrow, he says, death will come to those I love and then to me. And soon, not only will I not exist, but eventually no one will exist who will remember anything I have written or done. Why then go on with the effort? What is it all for? What does it all lead to? What difference does it make whether I do this thing rather than that thing or nothing at all? So I could give no rational meaning to any single action or even to my whole life. But what was so surprising was how we can all fail to see this. He writes, for a time, it is possible to live intoxicated with life. For a time. But as soon as one is sober, it is impossible not to see that life in the face of death is a fraud, a stupid fraud. How often I have been told, oh, you, you, you cannot understand the meaning of life, so don't think about it, just live. But he says, I can no longer do that. Well, guys like Tolstoy and a lot of other depressing authors and philosophers have pointed out over the last 150 years that human beings really do not want to wrestle with the problem of death. We will do just about anything to keep that out of sight and out of mind. We do not want to think about it. But the problem of death is this. You see, if death is it, If when we die, it's just over, it's the end of everything, well, then you tell me why anything you are doing or anything you are giving your life to matters at all. You see, if death is it, if nothing follows death, no next existence, no judgment, no giving of an account, no rewards for good or punishment for evil, then everything becomes profoundly insignificant. Nothing really makes any difference anymore. I think Tolstoy's right. What what do we do with this problem? Well, what we do is we repress the problem. Or we get, to use his phrase, intoxicated with life for a time. You know, we, we pursue things that take our mind off of the possibility that we're, we're going to die someday, right? And so we choose not to deal with the fear and the horror of death. But even though we try to repress it, says Tolstoy, we still, we still feel the problem of death way down deep. It gnaws at us. And that problem drives us to all kinds, various kinds of activity. We do anything and everything we can to create meaning in our lives. Uh, We try to make our lives matter. We pursue wealth or we pursue control, gaining control or pleasure or status or power or recognition or comfort. Or we give ourselves to charitable causes so we can say, look, look, see, I made a difference. But the terrible truth is, if death is it, nothing follows. And friends, you don't matter. Not really. And neither do I. None of it does. So at a profoundly deep level, the question is, who or what can deliver us from this dilemma? Not only have we not done what Psalm 8 said we should do, Create a world that is full of truth and beauty and honors and glorifies God. Not only have we not done that, but we are also now ourselves subject to death and the fear of death. Who's going to deliver us from this? That's the question. You know the answer. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus. Jesus is more than just a king. Verse 10, he says, in bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the author, the archegos is the Greek word of their salvation, perfect through suffering. The word that is translated "their author, uh, sometimes it's translated pioneer. It's a Greek word, uh, which literally kind of means arch leader. William Lane, in his Hebrews commentary, says that actually the word should be translated champion. And what's so cool about this is, you know, you can look at the death, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, his atonement, his paying for our sins. You can look at it from many different angles. It has many different facets to it. On the one hand, he's, he's paying for our sins, taking the punishment of God the Father upon himself. But this, this way of looking at it is slightly different, this idea of being a champion. And he argues that this is the way the writer of Hebrews is looking at it right here. Because he says, remember, uh, the writer of Hebrews uh, is writing in a Hellenistic world. Uh, he's writing to Jews who are Hellenistic Jews. They've been impacted greatly by a Greek culture. In fact, they mostly read the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of uh, Old Testament Hebrew. And this word, he says, this word in particular, archegos, uh, champion, in every other place that you find this word being used uh, in that Greek culture, it's translated champion. It's used to mean champion. So he makes a pretty good case for this. A champion was someone, as you know, who engaged in representative combat, right? A champion is someone who looks at you and me and sees that we are engaged in a battle that we cannot win because our enemy is way bigger, way stronger, way quicker, way more clever than any of us. And he sees that we are outmatched in every way. And this champion steps in to fight for us in a situation that will mean our certain death. And so our champion, Jesus, fights for us. He puts himself between you and your enemy. And he faces the enemy for you. He fights the one, verse 14 says, who holds the power of death. That's the devil. Friends, that is what Jesus does for you. That combat, of course, meant him surrendering himself, him being willing to die, him being separated from the heavenly father for a time, three days, in fact. And all the demons during that time and the devil himself rejoiced because they thought they had won the victory. They thought that the contest was theirs. Jesus was dead. He had been conquered. The champion had been killed. And they were right, of course. He had surrendered himself to death to die for us. But the irony of all ironies ironies is that this champion was able to die, able to suffer death for everyone, and then turn right around and come back from the dead. Who could have known? Nobody did. Nobody knew. No one had ever done that before. No one was capable of doing that. But Jesus was. The Apostle Paul really fully understood that and grasped it, and man, he got carried away. As moved by the Holy Spirit one time, he wrote some beautiful poetry. He says, Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, he says. Amen. So, Jesus, our champion, comes back from the dead. And he says, been there, done that, boom. And so now death and the devil are done. And that fact gives me hope to face the reality and the inevitable, inevitability of my own death. It tells me that death is not it. Jesus is. And so Jesus says, you know what? Your life, Your ups and your downs, your trials, your difficulties, your following Jesus as his disciple, your being in community with uh, others who follow Jesus, your service, your loving, your caring for others. Guess what? It all matters. Every bit of it every little jot and tittle, every attempt that you make to say yes to Jesus and no to the flesh or no to the Satan or no to the, to the world, every time you choose to follow Jesus, it all matters. Every time you serve someone in love in the name of Jesus, it matters. Why? Because Jesus says so. He died and came back. He put the devil in his place once and for all. So I now know that my life doesn't end with death it's just going to transition into a different and better place so death doesn't have to frighten me anymore now we could stop right here that's a good place to stop a sermon you know I think my sermon my profs uh, way back in seminary would say Dwayne that's that's where you ought to draw the line that's where you ought to you know just uh, you know land the plane bring it home get somebody to say hallelujah and go let's pray but no I've got more <laughs> one more point that's made here in this chapter that I want us to see. I want us to see, uh, yes, Jesus uh, is king, but not just a king. Yes, he's a champion, but not just a champion. He's also amazingly our brother. He is a brother who loves us. Verse 11 says, both the one who makes them holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy, are, that's us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers or to call them sisters. Verse 12, he says to the Father, I will declare your name, Father, to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And you just gotta go, wow. Really? We are Jesus' brothers and sisters. We are in his family. See, today, if you want to recommend yourself to someone, typically what you would do in our culture is you'd present a resume, which would kind of list out all the great accomplishments that you have uh, made. Uh, We don't recommend ourselves to other people by mentioning our family, who our mother is, our father is, our aunts, our uncles, et cetera. But in other cultures and at other times, that was how you recommended yourself to someone. Uh, you, would, uh, you would want them to know who your father and mother and aunts and uncles were. That's, that's how you presented yourself. Uh, I think back then maybe they understood that we are a lot more the product of our ancestors, our relatives, our families than we want to think. A lot of us are pretty young, so I know that you doubt me on this. But, but let me just tell you, the older you get, the more you realize how much of you is the product of your parentage the product of your family. For better and for worse, right? Huge parts of us are are not you because you created it. They are you because you received it from your family. In ancient times, as I said, I think maybe they understood this better. And so in ancient times, if for some reason you needed to recommend yourself to someone, you didn't give them a resume, you gave them your genealogy. Everybody did this, whether you're a Roman emperor or whether you're a slave. If you want someone to know who you are, you give them your genealogy. And you can bet that Roman emperors had great genealogies. But uh, they would also, every single one of them, present selective genealogies. They would leave off family members who were an embarrassment, right? Uncle so-and-so, he's not going to be in the genealogy. And they would prominently position family members that they were proud of. And so we then come to Jesus. In Jesus' genealogy, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew tells us who Jesus is. And in the genealogy, uh, what does he list? Well, he lists five women there. And that by itself was highly unusual. Very rarely was a woman ever put in a genealogy because in that culture, in that time, in that place, women were not going to add prestige to who you were or where you came from. Women were not valued the way they should have been. But women are mentioned in Jesus' genealogy, five of them. And interestingly enough, these are women that you, they're all women of ill repute. One was an incest survivor, that's Tamar. One was a prostitute, that's Rahab. One was a a Gentile, not a Jew, that's Ruth. One was an adulterer, that's Bathsheba. Uh, One was an unwed pregnant girl, her name was Mary. All women, normally you'd just kind of be ashamed of or certainly not want to mention or highlight. But Jesus proudly gives them a place of honor in his genealogy. Now that ought to encourage us because what it's saying is, is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what family you came from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been through the death of Jesus, through the sacrifice of Jesus, through the union that we have with Jesus, we become part of his family. We become somebody that he loves. And he is proud to call us sister brother. And so it doesn't matter what anybody has said about you. It doesn't matter what your parents might say about you. It doesn't matter what your siblings might say or the world says. You are not ruled by what they say about you anymore if you follow Jesus. What matters is what Jesus says about you. And He says, You are my sister, you are my brother. You are part of my family, and no one and no thing can change that or take that away from you, period. Friends, the writer of this book wants us to understand that we have a king. It's a king who gets involved, who comes from up there, down here. He holds the future in his hand. He's a king who cares. We have a king who is a champion, who fights for us against the devil and the fear of death. And we have a brother who loves us as only a brother can. These things and this knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus did for us, they're meant to encourage us. I hope they encourage you. They're meant to overcome our fears of death because our lives are headed somewhere. It's not over when we die. These things are meant to overcome our tendencies to drift away and become apathetic towards Jesus. They're meant to stir our hearts with gratitude and seize our attention, fixing our eyes on Jesus. They're meant to captivate our thoughts so that even in the face of suffering, hardship, persecution, difficulty, well, guess what? We stand firm together. We stay faithful together. We keep following Jesus together And I hope and I pray for all of us that as we continue to study through this book, and we're going to see Jesus from even more facets, more angles, he becomes even more beautiful than he already is. And I hope as we study together this book, week in, week out, we just are encouraged, our faith grows. Our tenacity and holding on to him and following him just gets greater and greater and greater together. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for this book. Thank you for the writer of this book. Thank you for inspiring uh, this writer to speak to us about so many different ways that Jesus is, yes, he's come as our king, but he's our champion and he's our brother and all of these things, God, we desperately need. Thank you, God, that death is not it, but Jesus is. This we pray in his name, amen.